I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, page 1508. Luke chapter 2. My intention is to take you through a familiar narrative, the story of the visit of the shepherds to the newly born Jesus, and just to walk, walk us through this um, as a kind of meditation in preparation for this Christmas season. I said last week that I think, and I think this is true, that one of the hardest things to do at Christmas, in my experience, is to remember Jesus. Because I think, um, certainly my, my feeling is that generally speaking, when um, the more indulgent I am physically in terms of like, you know, food and rest and all that kind of thing, the harder it is to, to worship and to be, um, to be focused on, on, on Christ in your life. And so Christmas, weirdly, though it should be a time of immense joy and, and praising of him, can sometimes be quite difficult. And, uh, and I, I want to encourage you guys, as we just meditate on this passage, we're going to be... Um, provoked and encouraged and stirred. And uh, I particularly want to have one focus as we look through, as I'll show you in a minute. Let's read it through quickly, and then we're going to go back through it more slowly. So from verse 8. And in the same region, sorry, just to clarify, Jesus has just been born. So just for the previous verses. So just to give you some context on that. That was a good one. Thanks, Tom. Um, In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. I don't know if it's ever struck you as odd, the, 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 the two stories of the visitations to the baby Jesus. Um, we've got the story that comes a little bit later, chronologically, of these kind of Eastern Oriental magicians um, who, who travel a very long way to come and see Jesus. And here we've got the story of these guys who just come in from the fields to Bethlehem I'm looking for him. I don't know if you've ever thought of the oddness of this. Like, why, for example, did God only select these two groups of people to come and see the newly born Jesus? Um, you know, if, 
I, I think this would have been, it would have been the most weird and freaky experience. Although Mary's already been through a few weird experiences up to this point. But, you know, if we, we had baby six months ago. If when Isla had been born in St. Thomas's, um, if, you know, the next morning we'd had a knock on the door and some sort of market traders had come in saying, we'd, we'd heard you'd had a baby and we'd come to see him. You know, that would have been a weird, weird, bizarre experience. I don't know if you ever thought about the oddness of the situation. And particularly, what is God doing? Why is it happening? And why is it recorded for our, our benefit? And I think the answer has to do with God's intention being signaled to get worshippers for his son. That God is showing in a very explicit and obvious way his intention to find worshippers from all the world. This is why he gets these kings from, or magi, magicians from the Orient, as well as these shepherds from the field, and his desire to bring worshippers to his son Jesus which gives us an idea about what God had in mind in sending Jesus, that his ultimate purpose was about getting worshippers, getting glory for his son. Now, the reason why I want us to think about that is that I think it begins to resonate in our hearts when we begin to ask the question, does my worship matter to God? I think that's a profoundly important question because if you think about it, when you worship, I mean partly singing as we just did or um, whatever other forms of worship you engage in of God, whether it's through prayer and and confession and and whether it's worshipping him in whatever ways you, you do, do you worship as though that worship was the most important thing you've ever done and could ever do? Do you engage with it with the sense the living God of the universe is watching and interested in your worship in a very personal, one-to-one way? Now, I don't, I don't mean to be critical, but I think you just think back to the last 20 minutes and how so often we find it difficult, don't we, to let worship bubble up in, with the right level of passion and exuberance that's appropriate to what we do. I think there are days when we find it easier and days when we find it harder. But rarely, and I'm speaking personally, do I find myself worshipping God in a way that's saying, God, I understand that your, your focus is entirely upon me at this moment in the sense that God is able to do that and that the posture of my heart matters to you. So God is interested in your worship. He cares about your worship. He cares about getting worshippers for his son. And I think that's the thing that I want us to look at through this passage. And I want to show you eight reasons why I think this passage teaches us that our worship matters in an extraordinary way, in a life-changing way, in a way that ought to inform and transform the way that we worship God. Let me walk you through it. Let's begin with this first observation, that the first worshippers here of the baby Jesus are shepherds. It says, verse 8, in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Why shepherds? Have you ever pondered that question? Why is it that God gets shepherds to be the first worshippers? I think partly it's just that there's a kind of a hat tip to 
Jesus' ancestry. Remember, he's descended from David, who was a very famous shepherd boy, become king. And before that, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the three great patriarchs of the Israelites, they were, they were all shepherds. So there's something about the dignity of the, the role. But please put out of your mind, when we think about shepherds, please put out of your mind the image, the cute image that we have of their job and of children in, with tea towels on their heads. I was one of those children. I had the eminent dignity of being a shepherd in the nativity play at school. And in fact, there is somewhere in the archives of the news station in the south of England called South Today, a tape from a Christmas when I was about five years old when they came with the camera crews and I'm there in my tea towel on my head and it was on southern tv so that's about that's about the that's when i peaked in my fame so um why shepherd it's partly this hat tip but i think the more important reason is this that shepherds as i'm sure you, many of you know were were very much the kind of um the bottom of society in many ways uh economically these guys were not wealthy they probably only owned the clothes on their back they may not have even owned the sheep that they were looking after. So they lived from hand to mouth, day to day, uncertain of what, whether their, their sustenance would come uh, in the future. They were, they were very much the bottom of society, sort of socially as well. So these guys are uncouth. If they walked into the room, you would have smelled them before you saw them. They, they wore the same clothes every day. There was uncertain whether they could get a wash before they came into town. These guys are dirty men who live out in the fields and they're, they're, they're not really the kind of people you want at your parties. They def definitely don't sort of mix with the it crowd in Jerusalem. These guys are the bottom of society economically, socially, and more importantly, spiritually. A lot of the commentators observe that um, the shepherds, in many ways, were kind of found themselves excluded from the spiritual life of Israel because their lifestyle was such that they couldn't engage in the ritual worship very easily. So it was hard for them to get into Jerusalem at the right times and offer their kind of worship and their sacrifices because they had to follow where the pasture was and bring their sheep from place to place. So these guys, in many ways, are kind of outsiders of ordinary society. And, and they're just, they're not, they're certainly not sophisticated, cultured, or even particularly acceptable and it seems to me that the very fact that God chose them to speak to, first of all, about the coming of Jesus, signals something so profound for you and I. You can recall your childhood in the playground when we would do team games, and sometimes the captains of the teams would go through picking people ultimately for their team. And often, if it was you who was one of the last to be chosen, you'd feel something of a shame and humiliation about that, that you weren't wanted well, that was the feeling of being a shepherd in Israel, in Israelite life at the time. And God sends angels to them. And it speaks to me of his incredible love and desire for you, that he pursues you and desires your worship, no matter how far you feel from him, no matter how unworthy you feel of him, that Christ desires your worship and he invests you with more dignity than you could ever imagine. It means he loves you, he wants you, he's inviting you. 
My second reason has to do with the fact that God has sent you angels. So he goes on. He says, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, I don't know, is there anyone in this room who has never had the desire to see an angel? Great. So I think we're probably all roughly on the same page here, that it would be, we think it would be an extraordinary experience. And we kind of wish that we were the shepherds at this point, having their experience of an angelic messenger, rather than whatever experiences you've had. But keep in mind, by the way, that typically in the Old Testament, when an angel came, um, it could often spell danger. Angels did things like dislocating limbs and threatening grievous bodily harm, and often killing large amounts of people in one swoop. So to see an angel was often to to think that you might be facing your impending death. So these guys, this is why they are very, very frightened when they see this angel. I have no idea what the angel looked like. I suspect they look more like men than we tend to to depict them. But in any case, they're afraid. My point, though, is this, that for you, God has sent angels to tell you about Christ and that this is a sign of his great love to win you to his son. The word angel, I don't know if you know this, is simply the same word for messenger. And if you are a person who has heard anything about Jesus, and I can tell you that you are because you're sat in here today and I'm talking to you about Jesus, then God has sent angels to tell you. I mean, he sent messengers into your life to tell you about this great coming of his son. I know if it's only me you get to hear, or one of your friends, it can feel like the equivalent of getting in an e-card instead of an actual card or something like that. You know, you'd much rather have the actual angel come and tell you. But we believe in the God who ordains your circumstances, that he knew before time that you would be here today and that he has so planned the circumstances of your life that he has put people in your path who would talk to you about Jesus. And so, in a sense, your opportunity to know him is no, it is no lesser than the shepherds being encountered by a host of angelic beings. God has sent angels to win you, messengers to win you, to tell you about his son. Here's my third reason. That the good news is about becoming worshippers again. This is my third reason why I think God wants, this is all about God wanting to win worshippers to himself. That the content, the essence, the core of this good news is about him getting your heart engaged with his in worship again. Let me read on. What does the angel say? He says, For unto you, actually from verse 10, the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. If God didn't care about your worship or about relationship with you, none of this would have happened. He would have left us in ignorance and never sent his son for us. But instead, what he does is he comes sending Jesus, sending Jesus which brings, as the angel puts it, great joy. In other words, this is something for your happiness, and it says it's for all people, which is to say that if you're a person, then it applies to you. And friends, when the angel says that this 
in the city of David is born a Savior who is Christ the Lord. The essence of it all is that God was wanting to renew relationship between you and him. Wanting you to be a restored worshipper. That we are by nature idolaters who run away from God. Who find ourselves in, with our backs turned to him. Often running in the opposite direction. Often unaware of his, his presence and of his desire to know us and to, to in, for us to enjoy him one-to-one. And the entire essence of all of this, of what God was doing in sending Christ for us, was as the angel puts it, that it would be good news to you. That it would be good news, something to make you happy, and something that would apply to your life, that he would win you as a worshipper back to himself. Here's my fourth reason. The lowliness of it all. Verse 12 says, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. I don't know if you've ever asked yourself, why is that a sign to the shepherds of the truth of what the angels are telling them? Because if you'd put yourself in the shepherd's situation... Surely, seeing angels was enough. You don't need an extra sign on top of seeing an angelic host and an angel addressing you personally, do you? But for some reason, the angels say, no, the confirmation, the seal, the sign of what we're telling you is that you're going to go into into town and you're going to find a baby in a stable and he's going to be lying in a manger. Now, why is that a sign to them? For this reason. That the one place that you should never find a baby is in a feeding trough. That's what a manger is. Just this last summer, soon after Isla was born, uh, we decided to, to go out into town. And as we were waiting in the bus stop, I was holding her. And it was one of those sort of breezy days. And uh, I, a Hispanic lady came up and started to reprimand me for not dressing Isla in more clothes. And after I'd, you know, internally, because I'm, I avoid confrontation, so none of this came out. But internally, after I'd, uh, after I'd told her off in, in, inside for, for, daring, for daring to confront me about how I look after my own child, and I've got an older boy, so clearly I know what I'm doing, I then realized that she was absolutely right. There are certain supermarkets, um, depending on where you go in town, and what cultures predominate, there are, there are places where if you take your children, you will have lots of advice about how to raise your children. And it's just, these things vary from culture to culture, place to place, person to person. But the one thing that everyone would agree on is that you never leave your baby in an animal's feeding trough. <laughs> have you gone to Vauxhall City Farm? There are signs everywhere that say you should wash your hands the minute you enter and the minute you leave. If you're going anywhere near these animals, they're covered in bacteria, they dribble and slobber and they're just disgusting and you don't want your baby in the feeding trough where the animals typically put their mouths and their mucus and it's all there in the trough, right? And so for, for the angels speaking to the shepherds, they're saying, look, even more interesting than the fact that we're here t- speaking to you is the fact that you're going to find a baby where you should never find a baby in the most disgusting place. And I think this would have resonated with a shepherd because they look after animals on a day-to-day basis. 
And somehow the situation would have spoken to them in a way that maybe it hasn't yet spoken to us about the lowliness of the way in which Christ came and that he was, he's found in, in one of the dirtiest places on the planet. And it preaches loudly to the hearts of the shepherds that this saviour, who is not wrapped in Egyptian linen and seated in, in the palace, is here in, in, the, in the stable, it speaks loudly to them of God's intention and purpose to rescue the dregs of society, to come for the lowly, to come for the broken, to come for those who are, who are, who are dirty and feel dirty. And friends, however you feel, I take comfort. You know, as the psalm puts it, where can I hide from your presence? God's pursuing love is so extreme that he's willing to send his son from heaven into a feeding trough to get you. There's nowhere, the psalm puts it, that you can hide from God's presence. You can cross oceans and lands. You can run as far as you want. God's rescue mission will always go to the nth degree to get you. My fifth reason is that God's given us these angels, an example of what it is to be worshippers. So it goes on in verse 13. Suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. A couple of things stand out to me here. One is that the very fact that the angels are found praising God. I think that it's as though we know from other parts of the Bible that this praise is going on to God all the time. And it's as though God just for a split second just peels back the veil. And the shepherds with their earthly eyes get to witness something that's happening in heavenly places. They get to see the angels engaged in what they most love to do, which is bring glory to God. Now do not forget that that was our created purpose also. That God did not create any creatures without the stated aim of bringing glory to himself. And that that's how they find their, most, their dignity and worth and value. And that it is only because we have fallen and with the fall we have forgotten and we have been distracted that we have failed to see this. But we're suddenly glimpsing again, what's it like when a perfect creature, a sentient creature, someone who, like us, can speak, what, what do they most love to do? And the answer is they want to give praise to the living God who they adore, who they delight in. And then look at the content of their worship, how they say this double line, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I don't know if you know anything about um, Hebrew poetry, but typically it works in little couplets where one line is matched by another line which is supposed to fill out the full meaning of what's being expressed. So it's like flipping a coin over from side to side. It's the same idea, but you're getting it from two different angles. The reason I draw your attention to this is because if you think carefully about it, what the angels are teaching us is about worship. It's about the fact that it's only in God getting glory that we experience the peace of God. Why is it that the world is so torn apart by ambition and power 
and fractured relationships? Why is it that we as individuals are so deeply insecure and desperate and grabbing? The answer is that we lack the peace that is being described here in the Bible. Peace with God, peace with others, peace within ourselves. But what, this, what the angels are revealing to us is that the peace that you so desire can only come as you become a God-glorifying being. Your highest purpose, it then floods your life with the peace of God when you are rightly related with Him as a worshipper whose heart is bowing before Him. Then we have the example seventh of the, or sixth as the shepherds. It says, When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. We need examples all the time to follow, don't we? I think humans are by nature creatures who imitate. And you always need people who kind of lift the lid on what what is possible and what we can attain to and what we can reach. I think about an example like when Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. You know, people have been trying for decades to do it, and then he did it, and then a flood of people did it after him. Why? Because his example was a kind of blazing a trail before them of what was potential, of what we could be and what we could do. And I find that the same spiritual inspiration goes on within, within in my faith, that when I look at other men who are ahead of me, who are more passionate than I am, who, whose lives are more dedicated and devoted and obedient and holy than mine is, I find myself wanting to run a bit faster and wanting to be a little bit more engaged with God. And so these shepherds are laid before you as an example of how we are called to respond to every invitation to worship Jesus. They say with eagerness, let us go see. And then they go in haste to go and worship him. And my question to you is very simple. Do you rush into God's presence? Do you want to go with haste to worship him? I think that is the appropriate response. You know, nothing is more frustrating, is it, in life than people who are sort of semi-interested, semi-committed. Think about the last time you put an event on Facebook and then half the people clicked maybe. What is maybe? Like, it's just so annoying. It's like, I'd rather you just say no than say maybe. It's like you're just waiting for a better opportunity to come along. But isn't it the case that so often that's how we approach our worship? That God is saying to you, come and worship me because you will only find your fulfillment and your peace in knowing me, in loving me, in worshipping me. And yet we click, maybe. Friends, I want to encourage you at this Christmas time to take a leaf out of the book of these shepherds who are eager. Nothing better had ever happened in their lives than this opportunity to see Jesus. Let us rush into his presence and worship him with full passion and delight. Number seven. This is what your lips were made for. It goes on in verse 17. It says, when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Their lips give birth to confession of what they have heard and know about Jesus. 
You ever wondered why it is that we sing? Or why it is that we have the Psalms and recite words about God and to God? Why does God want us to speak worship? Why, what is there that's special about it? I'm not sure I can give you the answer in any way, in, in a full way at all. But it is my conviction that one of the reasons God has given us language at all, in comparison with all the other beings on this planet, is that our lips were created to speak the truth about God. And that worship is the highest call of what your, your mouth can do. That somehow giving birth to the truth through your mouth, through utterance, through confession of the truth, is one of the most important things you can do. And you look at how these shepherds then, they relay what they know about this saviour. They start speaking about it. As an, almost, I think, as an act of worship, because look at what then happens as a result of it in the lives of those around them. It says in verse 18, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. It's interesting, isn't it, how the truth precedes the response of wonder and amazement. I think there's a lesson in there, by the way, for us, who we so often want to seek encounters with God outside of truth, so through some kind of mystical experience or something. But the Bible shows us again and again that it's in response to the confessed truth of who God is and what he's done in his son that we experience the most powerful, life-changing wonder and amazement. It says everyone around them wondered. And then it says of Mary that she pondered these things in her heart. It's a wonderful picture of what the Bible calls meditation, where you, you take a truth, an idea, a reality, and then you turn it over in your heart again and again, repetitively, continuously, until it takes such a firm root inside you that you cannot forget it, and it begins to change the way you think about life and about God and about yourself. My friends, our lips were made for this purpose, to speak the truth about Jesus to him and to others. If you find it hard to worship, I'd encourage you to just engage at that very, very basic level. Start speaking it out. I think about the context of your own worship when you're alone in your room on your knees wanting to pray and you're thinking, I have no idea how to even begin this time of prayer. Listen, the simplest way to begin is just to start speaking the truth about God and what he's done and who he is. You'll find that soon your heart begins to warm in a weird way. And suddenly you find yourself more engaged than you were when you began. And you begin to see new things about God. Or perhaps you take a psalm and begin speaking it out in fresh language, line by line to God about who he is and what he's done for you. This is what your lips were made for, friends. So whilst you're going to use them for all kinds of things, hopefully nothing illicit, but you know, we use them for all kinds of things. We, we love to fill them with good food and we love to laugh and joke and banter with one another and we love to tell our relatives how much we love them and enjoy them and we love to rip each other to shreds in a humorous way. Whatever we do with our lips, whatever we do with our lips, be like the shepherds and make sure that your mouth is full with the praises of Jesus. Let me bring you to my final point. Your worship matters because God is showing you that your joy is the goal. Your joy 
is the goal. I know it sounds oddly self-centered, doesn't it, when we start speaking about God's intention to win worshippers for himself and for his son. And it would be, it would seem odd unless we understand the truth that your best interest is found in becoming a worshipper of the living God. That you find your life fulfillment and joy in that experience. And so it ends with these shepherds. That they returned in verse 20, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. The image that we have is of these men bursting with praise to God in a way that is totally spontaneous, totally unplanned, totally free, and totally authentic. It reminds me of that point in the book of Romans when Paul's just been spelling out such elaborately deep and complex and beautiful theology for 11 chapters and then he just gets to the point where he goes, oh, the depths and the riches and the glory of God and he just starts to spill out in praise. That's the experience that these shepherds had. Are you happy? I'm not sure that it's possible to find true, life-satisfying, continuous joy outside of your call to be a worshipper of the Son. And as we meditate upon and think on and return to the reality of who Jesus is at Christmas and of his coming to save us, I want to encourage you that whilst you'll find joy in many things, we will only find this extraordinary, fulfilling, peace-filled joy that the shepherds had as we return to him in worship. Can we pray together? I want to lead us into communion. And I want to invite you as I pray, let's take this opportunity to... um, To ask God by his spirit to draw us back to himself, to recover the sense of wonder that the shepherds had, to be thankful for every opportunity that we have to be worshippers and to devote this, this time, this season, this Christmas time to him primarily. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that, that you did give us Jesus And Lord, I am ashamed of how often I take it for granted. And Lord, how easily we forget the wonder of it. Lord, I pray that you would enable us, Lord, us who so often, Lord, find that we we don't have time for you. As ridiculous as that seems and sounds. Enable us, Lord, to come afresh to you at this Christmas time. And to bow down like the shepherds would have done in front of that feeding trough. And to bring our gifts like the magicians did as they came from the east to worship this Savior. We want hearts, Lord, that are not lazy and are not slow and are not ignorant 
of what it means to, to know you and love you and to put you first in our lives. Lord, we confess to you that we are sinful people, Lord, who often find ourselves, Lord, caught in things that we despise. And so we come to you, Lord, and ask, Lord, would you forgive us? Forgive us, Lord, for our sin as we forgive those who sin against us. And Lord, we pray for fresh joy at this time, in this season. We pray for fresh delight in Jesus. We pray for real peace, Lord. We pray for new priorities as we enter a new year. The Lord, somehow we would be able to, Lord, recover or to find for the first time what it means to devote ourselves to you and to put you at the center. Not just as some kind of twee cliche, but Lord, in reality. Lord Jesus, have our worship, we pray. And be glorified in us, we pray. That the sun would be lifted up. It's all about you, Lord. Amen.